Today's episode is sponsored by Free Period Press and Jar Goods. Hey, what's up? Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Museroom. My name's Katie, and I will be your host as we meander into the lives of inspiring and creative people. This is a hub for makers, thinkers, and anyone else that is doing the work that they truly want to be doing. Hello and welcome back to Museroom. This week on the podcast, I'm talking with Jillian Kramer, journalist, editor, and founder of Modern Klee, a newsletter dedicated to telling the stories of Northeast Ohio women. Jillian realized she wanted to become a journalist while on a mission trip to Ecuador. She saw people foraging the trash for supplies to make their homes, and she was saddened that nothing was being done about it. Later in the trip, she was chosen to go to a women's shelter, and her pastor told her the reason she was chosen was because he wanted her to tell the story. She realized that maybe she couldn't change what was going on there, but instead she could write about it and tell the story. So Jillian decided to become a journalist and has never turned back. Tune into our conversation to learn more about her path to becoming a journalist, what it was like being a crime reporter in the Deep South, why she decided to start Modern Klee, and much more. But first a word from our sponsor. This episode is made possible by Jargoods. Jargoods is a women-owned company and they are on a mission to bring inspiration back to -to ready-to-cook pantry staples. Their mission started in 2015 when they launched their classic red, classic vodka, and classic spicy tomato sauces. These sauces contain more tomatoes, more olive oil, are thicker and richer and more flavorful than other brands. They're also super versatile, so you can use them in more than just pasta. Try these sauces in pizza, chili, or even ratatouille. The mission continued when they launched their beet and basil pesto and their vegan vodka. The sauces are completely natural and clean label, non-GMO verified, and women-owned certified. You can try Jar Goods today for 20% off your or first order when you use the code MUSEROOM, all caps at checkout. Just go to jargoods.com slash museroom to grab your sauce and use the code MUSEROOM, all caps, at checkout for 20% off your first order. This episode is also sponsored by Free Period Press. If you're not familiar, Free Period Press is a small business founded by Laura DeFranco right here in Cleveland. Laura was craving more creativity in her life, so she decided to collaborate with a designer and create an adult coloring book. What started as a coloring book turned into a whole line of stationary products that focus on creativity, productivity, and self-care. I'm currently using their habit calendar and it has helped me so much to focus on creating new habits, and I plan to purchase Schedule Magic next because I need a little bit of help with prioritizing my to-dos. If you're curious about trying one of their products or think it would be a good gift for someone in your life, you're in luck. You can use the code MUSE, M-U-S-E, all caps at checkout, to get 15% off your order. Just go to www.freeperiodpress.myshopify.com and use the code MUSE, all caps, at checkout. Use the code MUSE at checkout when you go to www.freeperiodpress.myshopify.com. Thank you for your support, Free Period Press.
just, I'm so excited to talk with you. Oh my gosh, I'm excited to do this. I really appreciate you, you know, reaching out and asking me to be on it. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to start by hearing about what has been inspiring you. Like, is there anything that happened recently that sparked some inspiration or is there someone in your life that always keeps you inspired? Just what is... Yeah, what is um, it? you know what? Actually, I have a friend coming to stay with us this weekend. Her oh. name is Kayla Coleman. She is a wedding photographer. She was our wedding photographer. Um, and I've been thinking about her a lot lately because mm-hmm. um, she she lived here in Cleveland. She was not exceptionally happy with her life, and she decided she was going to make this change. And I think that's so courageous and amazing. She got um, a camper bought a SUV, learned how to operate the camper, hitched it, and decided she was going to do this thing called 50 shoots in 50 states. Oh my gosh. And just took off. And she's been driving around the country, towing this trailer all by herself. Um, She's been to like 13 or 14 states at this point. She's coming back because she has a wedding this weekend. And she actually found a new place to live. That was part of the adventure, just going to these different places and trying to find where do I fit? Where do I see my life, you know, unfolding? And so she did, she wants to move to Denver now. And so again, I just think she was so courageous to do this and it's such an amazing adventure. And so Mm -hmm. I just have been thinking about that a lot lately and just how can I be a little more courageous and a little more adventuresome in my life, kind of like my friend Kayla. So, yeah. Oh yeah. my gosh. Because that's something that people dream about I know, doing, right? but to actually do it, I just can't even imagine how that must feel. She's an incredible inspiration to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, I mean, I'm sure people probably say this all the time, but it's because it's so true. The women of Cleveland are incredibly inspiring and Modern Clee has given me a platform to meet so many of them mm-hmm. um, and interact with them. I've been actually meeting with a few different business owners the past few weeks to collect donations for an event that we're having this weekend and just sitting with them and hearing their stories and the things that they want to do for the community and and how they're taking what used to be this tiny little seed of a dream and making these amazing businesses out of it. Mm -hmm. Um, It it challenges me to be on the top of my game and make sure that, you know, I can be a part of this community and continue to support them and, you know, share their stories in unique ways. Absolutely. And what are, going back to being courageous, what are some of the areas in your life where you feel like you want to be more courageous in? I think, um, you know, I have to give myself credit. I think I'm a pretty good risk taker. Mm -hmm. Um, I am a full-time freelance writer. I think that's a pretty risky yeah. business to, to work for yourself and constantly be hustling. You know, I always tell my husband, you know, it's I'm glad I have you because you have a job security mm-hmm. and I'm kind of out there. I have no idea what's going to happen right. week to week. Um, but age gets to you. And now I'm only 33. Um, but I think I had a lot more courage to to pick up and move, to to do new things, to take more chances. As you get a little bit older, you find a lot of excuses mm-hmm. as to why I shouldn't do this thing or I can't do this thing. And so I think that's where I need to be more courageous. What's the thing I want to do and how do I get rid of the excuses that are holding me back from doing it? You mm-hmm. know, look at Kayla. She probably could have come up with a million reasons yeah. not to do this 50 shoots in 50 shades, states. And she didn't listen to them. She just did it anyway. Yeah, so I need to be more like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's so many excuses that we can come up with just because we just want to be comfortable. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. Yeah, and comfortable is not necessarily a bad thing, but it's I guess it can be when it holds you back from mm-hmm. pursuing things that are important to you. Yeah, definitely. So you're from Ohio originally, 
from Canton? I am. I'm from Canton, mm-hmm. the home of the Football Hall of Fame. Oh, yes. I, I still have never even... I don't think I've been there before, and I live so close. Okay. It's no longer <laughs> a secret, because I'm saying it on your podcast, but I've never been there either. Oh, nice. <laughs> <laughs> I am, like, the worst Cantonian um, ever. And, in fact, our house is, like, a baseball's throw from the Hall of Fame, so I really have no excuse mm-hmm. that I've never been there. Um, my mom, for a Christmas present, bought my husband and I tickets to finally go. So we have those tickets, and we're going to take a day trip down to Canton to, That's funny. to go. Yeah, yeah, I wasn't part, we weren't a big football family or even sports family growing yeah. up, so yeah. it just wasn't something we wanted to do. Yeah, same for us. I mean, I grew up with a single mom. We were not watching football on the weekends. So. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what was your childhood like growing up with a single mom? And did you have siblings? No, I'm an only child. Oh, yeah. I think I knew that. I mean, I had a great childhood. My mom, she's amazing. Mm-hmm. I I don't know how she did what she did. Um, my parents got divorced when I was like seven going on eight. And my father very quickly moved to North Carolina. His company was, you know, the headquarters were in Akron and they were transferred down to Charlotte. So he moved with his company. Um, so my mom was really alone. Like mm-hmm. there was not somebody who took me on the weekends so that she had time to do things. She just had me full no time. No grandparents or? Our family's in New York. So oh. like sh- she was it. How did you um, guys end up in Ohio? She got married to my dad. Oh, and he's from Ohio. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, um, she was a school teacher, and so that was really nice. She had off in the summers, and we would go and take vacations. Um, but I remember, I mean, she just worked so hard. She mm-hmm. she was a full time school teacher. She eventually got a master's degree, so she did that at night, all while taking care of me. I had a wonderful childhood, mm-hmm. and I had a really wonderful example. Yeah, and so you you and your mom were really close. Oh yeah, we're still mm-hmm. really close. I talked to her every single day. That must be fun, just just growing up, two girls, just you know. <laughs> it was it was definitely not quite like the Gilmore Girls. Right. My mom, she was a strict parent, yeah. Um, and as a result, I think she she got lucky, and I like to tell her that she may have a different side to the story, but mm-hmm. um, she was extremely strict, and I think it could have gone one of two ways. I could have been extremely rebellious and just hidden what I did, and instead, she got the kind of kid where um, I remember. One time, my friends wanted to go TP someone's house as a Halloween prank, mm-hmm. and I was with them, and I called my mom on the phone, and I was like 16 or 17, um, old enough to drive, and I said, hey, mom, my friends are thinking about doing this. Can I go with them if I go and clean it up the next day? And she said, absolutely not. And I said, okay, and I came home. <laughs> I, I find that so funny. I like love I said, that. She, she got lucky, but she was strict. She, you know, she put the fear of God in mm-hmm. me, and so I did not... You know, for the most part, I did not step out of line. I can relate to that. Yeah, yeah. I was I had a similar upbringing. Strict parent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like I said, it worked out well for her. Mm-hmm. So, what did what were you like as a child? What were you into? What were you uh, were you creative? What did you want to be when you were growing up? Oh, um, well, I was convinced I was going to be a fashion designer. Ooh. Um, Why? Anyway. What? brought that on I you know I don't know I just always loved I loved fashion I loved putting together outfits I was definitely um talk about being a risk taker I remember one time in middle school which I don't know what I was thinking because kids are horrible in middle school and especially in high school and they just make fun of people relentlessly Mm -hmm. but I got this idea that it would be like really fashionable and really cute to instead of wearing my necklace on my neck put it over my forehead and it was one of those Y necklaces so like you know there was a little bead coming down between my eyes and that's how I wore it for the day (laughs) and I can't believe I'm actually saying this out loud now because it's so embarrassing, but like that was just, I was expressing myself in like yeah. what I thought was a fashionable way. 
and in eighth grade I was allowed to take an independent study and what I chose to do was study fashion and Mm -hmm. like my class was I read fashion magazines and I designed clothes and I would sketch them out and I think my you know final exam for that class was actually sewing one of my sketches and I wore that dress to our eighth grade dance so like that was just yeah I really thought fashion was going to be the way to go and when did you realize that that wasn't what you wanted to do oh it took me a long time Mm -hmm. it took me until I was probably a senior in high school um in fact eighth grade that same year where I had that independent study and we also had to do a career shadowing day and I wanted to do I wanted to shadow a fashion designer there's not really fashion designers in Canton not in Canton (laughs) no one for me to and I was, I was a bit lazy about pursuing, you know, who I was going to shadow because I thought the whole thing was kind of silly. Mm-hmm. I was an opinionated kid, too. <laughs> um, and so finally my um, guidance counselor said, look, uh, we're not waiting for you to figure this out anymore. We're going to put you with a journalist. And they put me with a journalist in the Akron Beacon Interesting. Journal. I wonder why they thought that. Because everybody else had already picked up that I was a good writer except for me. Okay. Mm-hmm. And they had entered me into writing competitions, and I would consistently win, and I just didn't care. Right. I didn't want to write. I wanted Mm -hmm. to design clothes. So um, I ended up shadowing this journalist who was um, covering Paige Palmer, who was being inducted um, into Kent State University for her her contribution to the fashion world. Mm -hmm. And I had a lot of fun. And I was really inspired by this woman. And I went home that same night, and I wrote up a little piece, a little column of my experience, and I sent it off to the journalist I had shadowed. No intention other than to just say, hey, like this was fun. Here was my take on it. Um, and two days later, they actually published the piece in wow. the Akron Beacon Journal. Still had no interest whatsoever in being a writer. Mm-hmm. I decided to be on the newspaper staff in high school. I decided that because my editor, well, I shouldn't say that. My, I took journalism class in ninth grade, and you weren't really supposed to start on the staff until 10th grade, but he mm-hmm. asked me to become a part of it, so I did. Um, And it was just, it was something for me to do. It was intellectual. I enjoyed it. I liked being able to ask people questions. And I obviously thought my opinion was very valuable, whether or not it was. (laughs) Um, But so I did. And and then really what ended up doing it was uh, I went on a mission trip Mm -hmm. with um, my church into Ecuador. And we went into this um, garbage site, like like a dump. And people were living there. And they were making homes out of the trash, and they were foraging the trash for mm. things to eat. And I remember there was a mom who had laid her baby on the ground, and the baby was just covered in flies because that's how dirty mm. um, they were. And I was just I was sickened, and I was disgusted, and I was 16, and I didn't understand why this was happening. And I didn't understand how people could know this was happening, and nobody was doing yeah. anything about it. And then we ended up going to a women's shelter. And I was chosen to go to the women's shelter. Not everybody on the trip went to this. Some went to the women's shelter and some did some other activities. And afterward, we had kind of like a, a talk with our pastor about, you know, why each of us were chosen to go to this women's shelter and see these abused women. And he went through and said why each of us had been there. And he turned to me and he said, and Jillian, you were here because we needed somebody to tell the story. Wow. And I think that's when it hit me. Those mm-hmm. combined events were like, okay, so maybe I can't change these things but Mm -hmm. I can write about them and maybe somebody more important can do something about it. So at that Um, point you were still you still didn't have any interest in being a writer. Until about then Mm -hmm. yeah and then I started taking it a lot more seriously and yeah I went to Kent State and I graduated with a journalism degree and 
mm-hmm. here we are. Yeah, so you said that before you were interested in being a writer, and before you knew you were good, you people were still entering you into writing competitions and you were producing really good work. So why do you think you just didn't realize that? Like, what was going on? I, pro- I mean, I knew I was a good writer. I just didn't care. Okay. And I think and I was annoyed with everybody else. I was like, yeah, that's nice that that's what you want me to do. But I want to do this right. thing. Mm-hmm. So I'm just ignoring you because obviously I know better than everybody yeah, else. So you didn't want to conform to what other people <laughs> wanted you to do. Like I said, mm-hmm. I was opinionated and I was probably a little yeah. rotten. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, my husband to this day says I'm a contrarian. And if he says one thing, I have to go so far opposite the other just to argue with him. And I imagine it was much worse when I was a young child. It was probably just my way of being like, okay, great. I'm going to go do this other thing because you told me to do this. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you started writing on the school newspaper. And when you first decided, like, okay, I want to take this a little bit more seriously, what were your intentions with it? Did you know you wanted to actually go to school for journalism or were you still kind of treating it as a hobby? Oh no, I knew at that point I would go to school for journalism Mm -hmm. and it was very obvious to me, and this is a joke and I hope it's coming through, but it was Mm -hmm. very obvious to me at that point that I was going straight to the New York Times. (laughs) Um, Of course. Of course. So, you know, you you work hard toward that goal. And so... You know, by the time I got to college, I knew I wanted to be in a newspaper track. Mm-hmm. Um, in in Kent, you can do at least when I went there, you could do newspaper, magazine, or you could do um, like TV news. Mm-hmm. So I went the the newspaper track because the Times was my yeah final destination. So why newspaper instead of magazine? At the time, it it seemed like. Um, it seemed like a more, I want to be careful with my wording, it seemed like more important work to yeah. me mm-hmm. um, than, than a lot of what magazines were doing. And I think that came from me reading them as a teenager for fashion yeah. and for, you know, what makeup to buy. And so I didn't necessarily look at them as like true journalism. Mm-hmm. I looked at it as entertainment. Um, whereas, you know, the New York Times was uncovering scandal and they were serving the people and they were, um, it was service journalism at its mm-hmm. best and that's what I wanted to do. Yeah. So now thinking back and looking back at those magazines that you used to read, do you think that they brought, bring value and do you think that they are like journalism? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. 100%. Mm-hmm. Um, I was reading... It's been a few months now, but Marie Claire had a really fantastic article about women um, veterans who suffer PTSD, mm-hmm. and it was like this fantastic deep dive into what it looks like to suffer through things that they see and how do they recover. And um, there was another recent article that I believe published both in print and online, same magazine, Marie Claire, um, about a doctor with an opioid addiction and why doctors are more prone to that and what happens when doctors have access to opioids. And Mm -hmm. so there's really fantastic journalism coming out of magazines and not... Do you think that's more recent with everything that's going on or has it always been like that? I think it's always been like that and it was what I was paying Mm -hmm. attention to as a teenager. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, cool. So you wanted, you really wanted to be in the New York Times. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Were you on a newspaper in college? Did they have one for students to? That was part of our requirement. Um, you did have to contribute to the the Kent Stater, the newspaper there. Mm-hmm. But I did not hold positions there. Um, my college experience was a lot different than probably most people's. Um, 
by the time I entered college, I had enough credits that I was considered a late sophomore mm-hmm. um, because I did post-secondary. So I graduated in two and a half years. And um, because I... Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, I, and I had a single mom who, who was amazing. She carried loans for what my scholarships did not cover, but she only had enough money to do that for two years. Um, so I was motivated to graduate because I didn't want to have student loans. Mm-hmm. Um, but that also meant that I worked, and I worked almost full-time. So I would take about 21 credit hours a semester, which you're really supposed to take 15. And I would take 21, and then I would go and I would work in the evenings, and I would waitress, and I also worked at a salon as a receptionist. Um, so I did not have time in my schedule because of my class mm-hmm. load and also because of the fact that I was working um, to do extracurriculars. Yeah. So I... I, I was a good college student and I graduated with a great GPA, but I did only what I had to do to meet my course requirements. Mm-hmm. I did not go above and beyond because I didn't have the time. Yeah. So, and you weren't partying, you weren't making friends, really. No. You were just no. really focused on getting it done. Never lived in a dorm, never mm-hmm. went to, well, I went to a college party, but I was still in high school at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, never actually went to a college party in college. Um, yeah, couldn't even tell you where the dorms were located. I knew exactly what building to drive to to get to my class and then to leave. That was it. Mm-hmm. So, wow. I want to talk about like how you honed your writing skills. What was the process like when you first realized that you wanted to take writing seriously? How, I mean, I'm sure you're still, it's still an evolution and you're still trying to get better and better um, after, you know, being an accomplished writer. Um, but from the beginning, what was that process like of just becoming a better writer? Um, you really have to learn to take criticism, mm-hmm. which is not easy for a lot of people. It's still not easy for me. Um, but I think the way you become a better writer is realizing that you don't actually know everything. A lot of journalists, I think, have an ego. Um and you have to learn to set that aside and listen to people who are better writers mm-hmm. and better editors than you. And so that process began in college, and it certainly continued through my career where you... I remember there would be times when I would get edited, and an editor would take out lines um, from my stories, and I thought, this is amazingly well-written. This this one sentence, this article can't survive without this mm-hmm. one sentence. So I would revise, but I would slip the sentence back in, <laughs> and I would turn my next draft in, and they would strike it through again, you know? Oh and, gosh. and it was just learning, okay, well, they probably know more than me, mm-hmm. and so can you listen to somebody else? Can you take their advice? Can you... And usually they're right, and so it's just a process, I think, as a writer of learning how to be edited. Um... In terms of you know what I did on my own, I read voraciously, um, and I think the more you read really good writing and really different styles of writing, it helps you find your own kind of style or your own voice. Um, so that was always really important to me. Mm-hmm. Um, reading journalists like Susan Orlean, who's actually from Northeast Ohio mm-hmm. and was an incredible um, reporter for the New Yorker and is now an author. Um, you know, reading reading like her, her yeah. kind of style was really important. No, I lo- I think when starting out, you kind of might, you people might copy the style of a different writer. Is that something that you did to kind of find your own style? I think I tried to pay attention. Mm-hmm. Um, 
What kind of syntax were they using? Why did it work? How many sentences were their paragraphs? Why did that work? What mm-hmm. kind of leads are the intro to a story? You know, what what did I find much more interesting than X Y Z, and why was it more interesting? And so I think in those ways I would try to copy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's a it's a good way. I think anyone who wants to learn to write better should read really good writers, yeah. and then kind of the same way that you. Uh, diagnose a problem or dissect a problem, dissect their writing. You know, Mm -hmm. how long are their sentences? What's their staccato? Are they rhyming? Are they dropping little hints throughout the article? Are they slamming you with it in the front? You know, how does it, how does it flow? What do you like about it? And then kind of go from Mm -hmm. there. When you realized that you just had to accept that you were going to get criticism (laughs) and that you weren't going to be perfect right away, like what happened next did it did your writing just take off after that like what was the evolution of that you know what I still have so much to learn Mm -hmm. I have so so much to learn and there are so so many good writers to learn from Mm -hmm. um I don't think my writing took off I think it got better yeah and I'm grateful for that Mm -hmm. I had some really really fantastic editors um I remember one editor I was writing about a crime scene cleaner Mm -hmm. and I described her gloves as being thick and to me, that was a very sufficient observation. They're thick gloves. And he said, well, but how thick? I don't know. I don't know. They're thick gloves. And he said, well, are they like a dime thick? Are they a nickel thick? Are they a quarter thick? And I thought, oh, they're probably about a nickel thick. We actually got out coins and we looked. And yeah, they're about a nickel thick. And that's what went into the story. And mm-hmm. so like that lesson taught me, yes, you can throw out a generic descriptor, yeah. but what's the better way of describing it? That doesn't it? paint a picture. Right, mm-hmm. exactly, exactly. What's the way that when the reader closes their eyes, they can actually see what you're saying? And so, yeah, like I said, I still have a really, really long mm-hmm. way to go. Yeah. But I'll never forget that lesson, and I try to always use it in my writing moving forward. How yeah. can I make this description more clear? Mm-hmm. I was listening to an interview with Ira Glass yesterday, and mm-hmm. also... A friend of mine posted this quote from Ira Glass, and it was about realizing that when you start out, you're just you you might be bad, and that a lot of people won't ever get past that point. They'll think, mm-hmm. "Oh, I'm not good at this, so why should I keep doing it?" Um, and I think, you know, when it comes to criticism, we think, "Well, if I'm getting criticized, that means that I'm not very good at this, and I shouldn't move forward." What gave you I guess the confidence and the drive to just keep going when you maybe had those thoughts of oh like why why are they criticizing me like why like I thought this was good probably just stubbornness yeah <laughs> and I so badly I wanted to be a journalist and that's mm-hmm. that's what you you take the good with the bad and mm-hmm. if and if criticism was uncomfortable or if it was it made me feel less than. I knew that was just part of the process. And if I wanted to make my way to the New York Times, then I better get better. And you just, you develop a thick skin. Yeah. You know, and you realize it's not personal. Mm-hmm. This person is not saying you're a bad writer. They're saying this sentence needs improvement. Yeah. And I think being able to separate those things where it's not you that's bad doing a bad thing. It's that this sentence isn't working or this paragraph isn't working. Mm-hmm. You start to embrace the process and you start to actually really welcome it because the editing process is exciting. If you care about what you're writing, no matter what comes through it and no matter what criticism is said, you know at the end of the day your story's only going to get better. Yeah. So you start to 
like, oh, okay, what else can I do better? What else mm-hmm. can I, how can I make this, you know, make more sense or be more clear or be more exciting? And you start to embrace it rather than fight it, yeah. I guess. And that process, I guess, kind of becomes addictive in a way. It is, definitely, mm-hmm. to the point where you miss it when it doesn't happen. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so with your writing now, I mean, I guess I'm jumping a little bit far, but with your writing now, I guess what's the process of the editing? What is What does it look like right now? Um, so what I do now is completely and totally different than mm-hmm. what I just described. Yeah. Um, because I'm a freelance writer who is not on staff and because I primarily write for the digital side of publications and I'm, you're a reader, mm-hmm. um, you know that there are probably easily 40 to 50 articles published on a given magazine's website each day. Um, so these editors don't have time. Mm -hmm. They don't have time to go like back and forth with you. They just need to push through content and get it up. Um, so I go through very little editing at this point. And again, that's because I'm on a digital side of Mm -hmm. things. Um, if I were pursuing a print side of things, I would go through that editing process. Um, do you try to edit your own work? I do. You spend a lot of time doing that? I do as much as I possibly can. Mm -hmm. And you know that, that's not always easy. Yeah, but I try. Let's go back a little bit. You were you were on the fast track in college and <laughs> got it all done in two and a half years. You said two and a half years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what was the next step that you took after that? So I graduated in December of two thousand and six. I was twenty. Um, I turned twenty one in January, and in February I took my first job as a newspaper reporter in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. Um, and I was a county reporter at that point for a county called Lamar, Lamar County. Um, and my job was to cover everything in the county. There were three small towns which had their own um, city councils. There was the county leadership, and then there was the school system. So anything that happened within the county, that was my purview. Um, and so, yeah, that's where mm-hmm. I started. And what were some of the things that you learned from that first job? Mm. Um well (laughs) yeah a lot a lot I'm sorry all I'm thinking about is like moving to the south was such a shock as it Mm -hmm. was and I think it it was a lot of responsibility for a new reporter to have you know three city councils that I was covering to have county government to have a school system um and I think the most important thing I learned from a job perspective was whatever you think you're capable of doing in a day you can do 10 times more because I would just, I would have so much to do and so much to cover. And I would think, how am I going to get all this done? And you mm-hmm. can do it. It's 100% possible. I learned how to manage my time really well. Um, but yeah, mostly what I learned was that the South is like a totally different country. <laughs> right. Um, wait, so this first job was in where? Hattiesburg, Mississippi. Mississippi. Which is, um, it's like a mid-sized town. It's probably mm-hmm. like a Canton. Mm-hmm. Um, it has a university, which, you know, keeps the population up yeah. and a little bit younger. Um, but uh, make no question, it is in the deep south. Yeah. So it was a different world for me. Oh my gosh. Um, and then you moved to Alabama after that? I did. I was in Hattiesburg for... I guess about 11 months, um, and then in January 2008, I moved to Mobile, Alabama to be a crime reporter at a newspaper there. Mm-hmm. Tell us everything. What was that like? <laughs> <clears throat> um, so it was, it was crazy. Um, I think I told you previously that I had read a book by Edna Buchanan, mm-hmm. um, who was a crime reporter for the Miami Herald, and it was called A Corpse Has a Familiar Face. 
Um, and I read that and her account of being a crime reporter and I decided, well, this is what I want to do. This is amazing. And so I got it in my head and I just applied for a bunch of crime reporting jobs and I happened to get the one in Mobile, Alabama. Um, I started there on January 2nd. On January 7th, um, a man named Lam Lung, he was a Vietnamese immigrant who was living in Biola Battery, which is just outside of Mobile, Alabama. Mm-hmm. Um, he drove to the top of a bridge called the Dauphin Island Bridge with his four children who were all younger than four years old. The bridge is about 80 feet tall. He went into the back seat and one by one he took the children and he threw them off the bridge. <gasps> and I mean, I, he would take one, he would throw them off, he would walk back to the car, pick up another one, throw it off, oh walk back to the God. car. So I was like five days in, and that was my first really big assignment. And I remember thinking, like, what was I thinking? This is horrible. Because we would drive down to the bayou, and we would sit, and I would sit with TV crews, and we would wait for these bodies to wash up. Mm-hmm. And it took like, I think it took like two weeks, if my memory is serving me correctly, for all the bodies to come up. One was actually found in Mississippi, one was found in Louisiana. And what happened to the father? Did he? He, um, he actually was put on death row. And mm-hmm. recently, um, because as I'm sure you can imagine, I followed the case. Yeah. This was one of my first big reporting things. Um, I think it was in October of last year, they took him off of death row. Because um, in Alabama, you have to have an IQ over XYZ. I don't know exactly what it is, but they determined his IQ was not actually high enough to be put to death. Mm. So he was given life in prison after that determination was made, which again was just late last year, I think in October. Um, but yeah, I mean, he was he was immediately arrested. There was no question about yeah. who had done it. Oh um, so he was immediately re- arrested, and I think his conviction came a year later. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So Holy like, moly. yeah, that was like my introduction to crime writing. Jeez. Like, yeah. So I mean, this was I can't even imagine like being so close to what was happening for you. You you're literally you were watching these bodies wash up and, and they were so tiny they were oh. so so tiny it was I kept telling myself like you can't cry you yeah know, not only are you really young but you're a woman and you can't you can't cry in the job like you yeah. gotta talk to these sheriff's deputies uh-huh. you can't be crying yeah and so I would be stoic as possible when it happened right. and then I would just come home at night and I would just sob and just yeah. that I had to get it out that way because it was horrible. Mm-hmm. And then shortly thereafter, my editor, um, in fact, the editor I told you about who encouraged me, how thick are the gloves? Mm-hmm. Are they nickel? Or um, He came out and he said, I'd like you to write a profile on the four children. Oh and I remember God. thinking, are you kidding me? <laughs> They're like six months old, a year, two years, and three and a half years. Like, how am I going to... You want me to go to this mother who just lost her kids and ask me to sit with her for hours and talk about what her kids were? No, please don't make, please, please, please don't make me do this. And he was like, you need to go and do this. I was such a wreck. And I remember having my notepad and shaking so much that I was having trouble writing because she was Vietnamese and we were speaking through a translator and she was sobbing and I was just trying so hard to keep it together. Mm -hmm. Um, and then there was just an immense pressure. Like, how do you capture children that haven't even entered school yet? Yeah. How do you write 
what a person's life is like when the life hasn't even started mm-hmm. yet. Um, it was incredibly intimidating for me. But looking back on it, I'm so grateful because I think that's the important part about crime reporting. It's not necessarily reporting the crime. Mm-hmm. It's, how do I want to put it? It's immortalizing people. It's providing a record of their life. It's helping families get closure. Yeah. And so it was a horrifying experience, but I'm really glad that I had it. Yeah, because I was going to say with the emotions that are going through you, but you're also probably excited because this is like the first big piece that you're working on. So yeah, what is that like? It's just, yeah, it's an incredible amount. You feel a lot of responsibility mm-hmm. because that was the only thing that was going to be written about her kids Mm -hmm. other than the fact that they died. Yeah. And so I wanted to get it right and Mm -hmm. I wanted to capture them perfectly so that no matter what, at least she had this thing to look back on and she could read this and take some joy in the fact that her kids were beautiful and they were wonderful and they had personalities and that's all I can remember about it. Just Mm -hmm. feeling an incredible amount of pressure. Like how can I do this justice? How can I, is there something I can do to help this woman Mm -hmm. through this piece? And, and I hope I did. Um, yeah, yeah, it was just, Mm -hmm. it was crazy. I can't even imagine if listeners wanted to read that is, can they find it somewhere? It's probably still online. Mm -hmm. Um, the press register, um, is part of advanced publications, which went primarily digital. And so I think their website is just al.com now. So they would go to al.com and they would, um, Google Lam Lung and his name is spelled L-A-M and then the last name is L-U-O-N-G. L-U-O-N-G. So it would be, Mm -hmm. it would be under there probably. Wow. Okay. So after that, how long were you with this job? Um, let's see. I was there from 2008 until 2011. Mm Mm-hmm. And were there any other, like, so you were mainly, you were always reporting on crime, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. And were there any other experiences like this that you went through that were just so traumatizing none that were quite as traumatizing but I think the same way that you build a thick skin to mm-hmm. editing and criticism unfortunately when you're a crime reporter you build a little you have to because mm-hmm. you're seeing horrible things every day or hearing about them every day so you kind of build a thick skin and that was part of the reason that I knew it was time to stop being a crime reporter because I didn't I didn't want to keep that thick skin. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to not care that somebody had just been shot in the leg. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. like somebody just got shot in the leg. That's a big deal. But to right. us, it wasn't a big deal because yeah. we wouldn't cover it in the paper. And you're getting paid to write about it. It's yeah. just kind of a weird dynamic, I guess. It's totally weird. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, there were definitely, I mean, there were definitely kind of crazy things. I remember um, another case that really stood out to me and it wasn't really a a case because this was a a manslaughter case um a 15 year old boy was walking his bike along the side of the road and a drunk driver swerved and hit him Mm -hmm. and um so I went down to write about the fact that this had happened and um it was a single father and it was his only son and he was just sobbing and couldn't believe that this had happened, obviously. And that was always the hardest part. You had to somehow convince people who were devastated that you had a right to be there and you had Mm -hmm. a right to hear these intimate details. Um, But luckily for me, (laughs) this man was very much um, interested in talking about his son. And Mm -hmm. we went into his son's bedroom 
and he pulled out an old shoebox of photos and I remember him laying out the photos on the bed and I could just see this boy growing up in the photos going from this tiny little toddler into mm. a young child into this teenager and he would take me through the photos and say this was when he was playing basketball and this is when he was you know and yeah it, so like that stands out it stands mm-hmm. out to me because of the openness of the father to want to talk yeah. to me about his son and 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 want him to be understood mm-hmm. in this piece. Yeah, absolutely. Did you ever have any experiences where people didn't want to talk to you? Oh, yeah. And how did you kind of get past that? Uh, you realize it's it's not personal and everybody deals mm-hmm. with, you know, um, stressful, horrific yeah. situations in a different <clears throat> way. Um, some people find talking about it cathartic. Other people think it's totally nobody's business and there's mm-hmm. no right or wrong. Um, when people think it's nobody's business, do you still have to kind of get in there and get... Yeah. There's, there's you, no... As a newspaper reporter, there's no option where you just don't yeah. write about it. You mm-hmm. write about it one way or another. Um, so there was definitely a balance for how hard do you try before you're crossing a line into being just heartless or um, obnoxious. Um, and I probably was not as good at pushing as I should have been. If somebody said no, I tried to be very respectful of that right. and walk away and see if there was another way that I could get what I needed. Mm-hmm. Just looking at it from different angles. Um, right. And you got creative, too. Like, I remember, and this is another case that stood out, there was an, a 60-year-old man who had a second home, and he went into his home only to find that a homeless man was squatting in the home. And he got bludgeoned to death by this homeless man. Oh, my goodness. And I was still really new on the job, and I had it in my head that I had to see the crime scene. Like, mm-hmm. I had to see where the man was killed in order to write the story. I totally didn't have to, mm-hmm. but I had it in my head. And, you know, I went up to the sheriff's deputy, and I said, you know, can I get in and look? And he was like, no, this is a crime scene, crazy person. You can't go in there. <laughs> um, and then I talked to another sheriff's deputy, and he said, well, I shouldn't be telling you this, but when we leave, the home gets turned over to the family. So if the family lets you in, we can't stop you. So then I had to go up to the family members who had just found out mm-hmm. that their father or brother or whatever had been killed, and I had to somehow explain why I wanted to go into the house and see the crime scene and I was able to convince them Mm -hmm. and I did go in and I did see the crime scene and I got some really interesting details from that for the story that nobody else got yeah um but yeah looking back on that I'm like why did I want to go in and see that like it's crazy to me Um, yeah I would never want to (laughs) (laughs) right exactly but like I said I thought, oh, I, I have to see a crime scene in order to write about the story. How could I write the story without right. you know seeing where it happened? Mm-hmm. Um, so you got you got a little creative, you yeah. know, and and how you could get the information. Mm-hmm. And does that do you think that skill translates into your writing now? Definitely, in terms of persistence, in mm-hmm. terms of if you get a no, how do you get a yes from yeah. someone else, or mm-hmm. how do you still get the information you need? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you left in 2011. Mm-hmm. I dabbled in freelancing for a while. Mm-hmm. I was not successful. Um, so I actually applied for and got a job at Cleveland Magazine mm-hmm. as an associate editor. And I started there in 2013 um, and worked there until December of 2014. Mm-hmm. And is that when you decided to move to New York? That is when I decided to move to New York. Yeah. What made you want to move to New York? Oh, it was a lot of things. Um, I was going to be turning 30 shortly, and I had always wanted to live in New York City. And obviously, I was not making it to the New York Times, but I mm-hmm. still wanted to live and work in New York. 
Um, and about six months earlier in June of 2014, I had met the man who is now my husband Mm -hmm. and he was living in New York. So between those two things, um, and I had already been freelancing on the side and I had already made a decision that I was going to move to, um, freelancing full time because it was, um, it was more lucrative than it was the first time around Mm -hmm. when I tried it. Yeah. Those things combined, knowing that I could financially do it, knowing this amazing man that I had just fallen in love with was living there. And the fact that I was turning 30 and I was not going to not have lived in New York. Mm -hmm. So off I went. And what was your life like? You were freelancing. What was the day to day like? Oh, very unglamorous. Yeah. Not at all like mm-hmm. Carrie Bradshaw. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> we lived in this tiny, tiny little apartment. It was 304 square feet. Um, so if you can picture that, that's about the size of someone's living room. That mm-hmm. was what we lived in. Um, and so I would work from home a lot. I would work from a coffee shop um, if I was feeling adventurous. But most days I didn't get dressed until noon and I would, you know, work from the apartment. Um, and... The weekends and, and the evenings were a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. We lived in the West Village, and so that meant that we could walk out of our door, and we had a million restaurants and bars and cafes that we could check out, um, some really great boutique shopping. Um, I loved mm-hmm. it. I loved every second of it. It was invigorating and inspiring and frenetic. It was fantastic. Mm-hmm. Did you make a lot of connections while you were there? Um, I had a lot already in place, so Mm -hmm. I got lucky, and then I got to meet my editors face-to-face, which was a lot of fun, Um, and in fact, the year we ended up moving out of New York shortly before, um, an editor at Food & Wine went on paternity leave, and so they asked me to step in, and I actually Mm -hmm. got to work in the Food & Wine offices for, I think it was almost a month, it was like three and a half weeks, Um, so like that was super fun, and obviously that would not have happened if Mm -hmm. I weren't living in New York, so didn't happen often but every yeah. once in a while something really mm-hmm. fun like that where you got to work from these big publications offices would come up mm-hmm. and what were the other publications that you wrote for while you were there yeah so when I first started I was writing primarily for women's magazines like mm-hmm. glamour and um, brides and then eventually I transitioned into writing food and travel so I was doing mm-hmm. a lot for food and wine more recently I started writing for travel and leisure Um, And that's kind of the space I'm in right now. Mm -hmm. And so what was that transition like from writing such, like, emotionally driven crime pieces into writing about, into writing for women's magazines, like, totally different? Well, I was lucky because I did have that midterm staff at Cleveland Magazine, Um, Mm -hmm. and and that was good because it was a totally different kind of writing, Um, and I remember the first feature I got assigned at Cleveland Magazine, and they wanted like 3,000 words, and I wanted to cry because as a newspaper reporter, I think the most I had ever written was 1,200 words, Mm -hmm. and I thought, oh my gosh, I have to more than double what I'm used to. I don't have that much to say, and it really taught me, that experience was fantastic, and it really taught me how much you had to report and how much you had to know in order to write a really, really good story. And um, it also taught me to be a little more voicey in my writing because in newspapers, you're just being very factual. Yeah. And you certainly can, you can have a tone and you can weave a story, but it's a lot, it's a lot different than magazine writing. Mm -hmm. And so being at Cleveland Magazine taught me that I could insert myself a little bit more into the story and I could take a little more liberty with the tone or the, the words that I was using. So that was a really good preparation for going into women's magazines, mm-hmm. which are extremely voicey. And, you know, even even reported pieces have a lot of um, 
a lot of opinion or a lot of like, what's the word I'm looking for? I'm not as good at talking as I am at writing. Um, <laughs> um, but you know what I, I know mean. What I mean. Like, yeah. yeah, they definitely have a tone, I mm-hmm. guess is the right way to put it. Yeah. So adjusting to that was probably the most difficult part, that I could have mm-hmm. a stronger voice in my writing. And, um, you know, in newspapers, every single sentence is, is attributed to something. Here's where I got this information there. Here's who said this, even if I'm paraphrasing it. And in magazines, you don't have to do that. Mm-hmm. You can go five paragraphs without ever mentioning where you got the information. Interesting. And I was just like, oh, that's horrifying. Like, how are yeah. readers going to know that I'm actually <laughs> reporting facts? Right. Um, so, like, that took a lot. Um, of getting used to for me. That's interesting. Um, I'd love to talk about your writing process a little bit. So when you first get an assignment, what's the process of creating the piece from start to finish? Yeah, so it's probably not that exciting for Mm -hmm. what I do day to day because, as I mentioned, I'm primarily digital, so those pieces Mm -hmm. are a lot shorter. Um, They just don't require as much work. Um, They'll typically require a phone call with a source and probably a half-hour interview, Um, and then I can just write from there. The deadlines are extremely fast. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, you might get an assignment and it's due three days later. So mm-hmm. you don't have a lot of time to have yeah. um, a process. You just mm-hmm. need to produce and quickly. Right. Um, luckily, you know, I still have Modern Clee mm-hmm. um, to to do a little bit more long-form journalism. And certainly when I was at Cleveland Magazine, the process was a lot different, where you would get to spend time with a source and you would follow them around. And a lot of it was just observing and seeing what their day was like. Um, you would have multiple interviews over several days. You would interview their families or their friends or their coworkers. There was so much more that went into it, um, like I said, versus now where it's just an editor wants a piece in three days mm-hmm. and you make a phone call and you write it and it's off and it's published and that's it. Do you like doing that or would you rather write more of the long, more long-form feature pieces? I wish there could be more of a balance. Mm-hmm. I really do. I miss the long-form pieces. Yeah. Very much so. Mm-hmm. But you still get to do that with Modern Clee, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. I do, which is really, really nice, yeah. especially to be able to do it with such amazing women in this community. Yes, for sure. So you mentioned that you will follow a person around and just get as much information as you can. Once you have all of that information, what's the next step that you take when you are actually going to put it into words? Like, how do you compile all that information? I think about it in terms of building scenes because I recognize um, as a journalist I get access to or get to ask questions of or see Mm -hmm. things that, you know, maybe not everybody gets to see. Right. And so... Um, I think probably my first step is going through all my notes and I take different kinds of notes. I'll oftentimes, if I'm sitting down talking to somebody, you know, I'm recording on my phone in addition to writing on a notepad, Mm -hmm. making observations, like are they making facial expressions? Do they have a tick? Are they nervous? Are they tapping their foot? You know, I'm taking down those notes as we're talking. Um, so I'll kind of go through my notes and see if there's anything consistent or anything really, really interesting that I feel deserves to be pulled out and called attention to. Mm-hmm. And then you have to think about what's the best way to do that. Is it just one sentence? Is it an entire scene? If it's a scene, is it the start of the story? Mm-hmm. Is it something you use to illustrate another point? Um, I know some writers will literally make an outline same way that you would do for a research paper. I don't do that. Mm -hmm. I typically just ask myself, what did I think was the most interesting thing I saw, heard, or talked about? And does that deserve to be at the front or does it deserve to be the bulk of the story? And then I just build off of that. And then once you kind of have like your first draft, 
Um, how many how many drafts do you usually have before you have the final product? Um, so probably three. Mm-hmm. Probably three is a good average. And I asked that of the writers too that write for Modern Clay. Mm-hmm. I think they would probably tell you that they go through at least two revisions with me, maybe a third. Mm-hmm. Um, because I'm always of the opinion something can be better. Mm-hmm. So Absolutely. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I want to talk about interviewing mm-hmm. a little bit, and I think that's a little bit selfish <laughs> and on my part, but I'm just really curious about what your interview process is. How do you prepare for an interview? And when you're actually in the interview, what are some things that you do to really just pull the information that you want out of your interviewee yeah um well you know for research the best thing that I think you can do is read everything that's already out there about Mm -hmm. the person um nowadays obviously you go on their social media and Mm -hmm. you read back as far as possible yeah um you obviously get on their LinkedIn you um yeah your research is finding out every human detail that you can Mm -hmm. about this person um in the interview I, I definitely come prepared with questions. I have a list, you know, that I'll go in with that I know if I if I only ask these questions, we'll be good. Mm-hmm. Um, but here's a tip for anyone who is an interviewer. I think the most valuable thing you can do in an interview is not ask questions. Interesting. And you just sit. People do not like silence. They hate it, and they will fill it. And so if you sit with somebody and you ask a question and they answer it, and let's say that they didn't give you enough information or you wish they would expand on it and you don't want to push them in a certain direction, you just want them to keep talking, you just sit. Don't ask a follow-up, don't ask another question, just sit. They will fill the silence. It's super weird to do, especially as the person who's just sitting there staring at somebody. (laughs) Right. Would you say that's mainly for for writing or would you also give that advice for someone doing audio? I don't know if it'd be great for audio because, mm-hmm. well, but I guess you could edit out the silence, right? That's right? true. Mm-hmm. So maybe it is a good tip for huh. audio if you can cut that silence out. That's really interesting. I yeah. might take that into practice. Okay, but don't do it to me now. Right. <laughs> I won't. <laughs> um, wow, cool. That's so interesting. I really never thought about that. It's mm-hmm. true. Yeah. Yeah. So what... What advice would you have for new journalists or maybe even people like me who didn't go to journalism school but are trying to kind of take that path? Yeah, so honestly, it's a really, really scary time in the journalism world Mm -hmm. right now. Um, And you and I met previously and we talked a little bit about this, but there are just, there are fewer opportunities at fewer publications. um, And it's honestly... I don't know that I could ever advise somebody to go into journalism school at mm. this point because of the way that the landscape is changing. Right. That being said, if if it is a side hustle, if it is a passion, if it is not something you have to make a career out of mm-hmm. and you just really want to be a writer, then it's probably a great time because um, the digital the digital landscape is changing and they're trying to produce more and more content, which means that there is there is probably more opportunity on the digital side. Um, and editors are not asking for your resume, and they are not asking, you know, whether you went to journalism school or not. Their mm-hmm. primary concern is, do you have a good story, and are you capable of telling it? Um, and so the advice I would give to people who are not journalists but who do want to do journalism or who do want to do writing um, 
the best thing you can do is make sure that you've done enough research that when you were to pitch an editor, you can reasonably convince them that you know the subject, you know how you would tell the story, um, and why you're the right person to write it. Because mm-hmm. again, while they don't care if you went to journalism school, they want to know that yeah. you're capable of doing it. So, um, for example, if I were to pitch food and wine about a Cleveland chef, I would make sure to mention I live here in Cleveland and mm-hmm. I've eaten at the restaurant. Or, you know, maybe um, you want to do a piece on... If you were going to do the piece on the women I mentioned who are mm-hmm. suffering PTSD, are you a psychologist? Do you bring that kind of expertise to the table where you can talk a little bit more about... Um, mental illness and mm-hmm. how that affects people that's a valuable thing to an editor so again mm-hmm. you just because you're not a writer doesn't mean you can't write right um you just have to find what makes you the right person to tell the story mm-hmm. okay so you moved back to cleveland when we well we moved out of new york in may and my husband and i traveled in asia for three months mm-hmm. and so then that brought us here to cleveland in mm-hmm. september ish. and when did so I just want to really dig into how this idea for Modern Clee came to you. When did this happen? Where were you? What were you feeling when this idea plopped onto your, into your head? Yeah, well, obviously I'm a crazy person. <laughs> That's the short answer. It was just crazy. Um, the long answer is um, my husband is originally from the Cleveland area, mm-hmm. um, and he always knew that he would come back. And so when we got married, we started talking about when that would be. And um, we, it was May of 2017 that we decided that was going to be the last lease that we signed in New York. So mm-hmm. by May of 2017, I knew we were going to be leaving and probably, um, probably right around then I started thinking about what life would look like for me back in Cleveland. Mm-hmm. Um, I had been watching, I think this incredible Renaissance happen, and it was happening when I was here, um, at Cleveland magazine, certainly, mm-hmm. but things were just growing and exploding in this town. And it was incredible to see from a distance. And I knew that when I came back, I wanted to find a way to be a part of it in a bigger way than just going to businesses and being a patron or or going to events. I wanted to somehow contribute. Mm-hmm. And then really the only thing I've ever done in my life is tell stories. And mm-hmm. so that was just how the idea came to me that I could see the amazing things that were happening and especially that were being driven by women. Mm-hmm. And maybe the way I could contribute was sharing their stories on a platform that was just all for them. Um, we have a lot of really wonderful companies here producing journalism. I love Cleveland Magazine. I worked there. I think it's a phenomenal, phenomenal magazine. Mm-hmm. Cleveland Scene's great. The Plain Dealer's wonderful. But there was no space that was just for women. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to create that because, again, a lot of the renaissance I was seeing was attributed to women and their efforts. So yeah, I got this crazy idea that I was going to start this online magazine. Um, and it took me about a year and a half of planning and um, getting everything in order so that we could launch in November of last year. Wow. So, well, first, I I like what you said about how you wanted to become more of a part of the community and you wanted to contribute and I just wanted to say that I completely relate to that because I was also kind of just moving to Cleveland and there I saw that there were so many things happening and Mm -hmm. I kind of felt like I was on the outside and yeah 
so I relate to that a lot. That's, yeah, and we had talked about that previously, mm-hmm. and I think what you're doing is, it's very similar, and it's in the audio space, right? Mm-hmm. You want to be able to talk to incredible women about the incredible things they're doing in this incredible community, mm-hmm. and we're very lucky to be able to do that, yeah, I think, right? I think to have so. an excuse mm-hmm. to talk to exactly. these really cool women. Because mm-hmm. yeah. neither of us would really have the chance to hang out with people <laughs> like Steph, and I, I would never have the opportunity to hang out with you and right oh, you're here, very right sweet. now. <laughs> Thank you. Mm-hmm. Oh, I know. I totally agree. Yeah. I always tell people I think journalism is the coolest job in the world because mm-hmm. who else gets to just have this built-in excuse to do and see and meet really mm-hmm. cool people? It's so it's like, true. It's the best. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. So, okay, so I didn't realize that this, the launch... And the mm-hmm. planning of everything took a year. Oh, yeah. Wow. Easily. Mm-hmm. So, obviously, Modern Clea is not what it was when it launched. Mm-hmm. And we can certainly talk about why that is. But at the outset, I was determined that it was going to be an online magazine that published regularly. I wanted it to be the thing that people, women in Cleveland, and men certainly, mm-hmm. um, were going to wake up and say, okay, what article published on Modern Clea today? And mm-hmm. they were going to go and they were going to read. Um, and... Again, being from a journalism background, I I had a better understanding of what that would take to create. And so I immediately had to um, build an LLC to put a structure behind the company. So that took a while. I had to work with an attorney to put up privacy policies and terms of use for a website. Um, I had to go through an insurer to get business insurance because... Um, as a journalist, I have an incredible responsibility to fact check and research and mm-hmm. make sure that what we're publishing is correct. But just in case, heaven forbid, anything that we publish was inaccurate or was even worse, libelous, we needed to make sure that we had business insurance in place so that if someone sued us, we would be protected. Yeah. So we had to go through and you know purchase business insurance. Um, and that was just kind of the formation of Modern Clee LLC. Then there was finding a website template that would work and customizing it. Mm -hmm. There was um, trying to figure out what our publishing structure would be, how that would work. Um, Would we take advertisers? Well, if we were, we needed a media kit. We needed to build that. Um, And then as the months were getting closer, it was, I can't launch a website, an online magazine without articles. Mm -hmm. So how many verticals will it have? Verticals are you know, um, if you go on, for example, Glamour's website, mm-hmm. they have a beauty, they have a fashion, mm-hmm. they have news. Yeah. Those are verticals. So mm-hmm. how many verticals is Modern Clique going to have? Okay, what's that page going to look like when you click on the vertical? How many articles should there be? So I figured we had three verticals, three articles on each vertical to launch, which, with, which was nine articles we needed to write before the site ever even went live. When the site went live, we needed to make sure we had our first month's editorial calendar built out because I was not going to be caught without a story to publish. Yeah. So that had to be assigned. I had to find freelance writers. I had to work with an attorney to draw up contracts so that when I hired the freelance writers, they knew who had the copyright to the piece, how many revisions would be expected of them, when we would pay them, how much we would pay them. It was an incredibly, like I said, I was a crazy person. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was an absolute crazy person because it was so much work. And you were doing this all by yourself? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I was incredibly fortunate when we started um, on social media. We started in about October to start kind of drawing buzz. And I had a dear friend who works in the media landscape here in Cleveland and she does social media and I can't say her name or else I would um, because she's actually under contract and she's not supposed to be Mm -hmm. freelancing Um, but she stepped in and she helped me with social media and I paid her 
So technically she was a social media manager Mm -hmm. um, for about a month and a half until I decided to reabsorb it and take it on in order to cut that expense. Um, So I did have her helping with social media and she was amazing. I mean, she built up our Instagram to like a thousand followers in 10 days or something. It was crazy. She's so, so good. I wish I could have continued paying her. Yeah. Um, Maybe down the road. Maybe down the road. That would be wonderful. Mm -hmm. Um, And I had another friend who's an editor here locally at a trade publication. And so the assignments that I would give to freelancers, I would edit and then I would pass them along to her Mm. and she would give them a second edit and give me her notes back. And I would, you know, make those revisions. So I had a lot of help from her as well, Mm -hmm. making sure that pieces were, um, in tip top shape before they published. And with those exceptions, it was me. Yeah. Yeah. What about all of the just kind of building your brand and like the website design where you where did you help have help with that or were you just I purchased a template from okay. a designer and then I learned code and I learned Whoa. how to edit the template so that it fit you know and and when I say learn code it was never anything fancy mm-hmm. it was you know like how do I change this color or how do I make links look this way or little things like that it was nothing that extensive but I did have to learn in and go in and say like well this is the piece of code I need here in order to make this thing do this um so yeah that was fun just that's a lot (laughs) I'm so thankful for Squarespace I know we moved over there recently and it's Mm -hmm. like night and day Mm -hmm. that being said I'll probably move back to WordPress eventually if we stay on but Mm -hmm. yeah it's it's a lot easier on Squarespace no code necessary Mm -hmm. so after all of that was done um, I remember seeing you at the Cleveland Flea. You yeah. were kind of spreading the word. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I was being absolutely ridiculous. I hate talking to people. You wouldn't think of being a journalist, but I'm incredibly shy. And so my girlfriend was there with me, and she is bubbly and exuberant mm-hmm. and just amazing around people. And she was standing there. We had little note cards to give out people with our address and our lunch date, um, our web address. And she would say, hi, have you heard about Modern Clean? Come on in. Let's talk to you about it. And I was like, hi, like I'm starting this online magazine. Do you have a second to talk? I was so awkward. Mm-hmm. Um, so thankfully she was there to talk to people for me. Because... I didn't think you were awkward. Oh, good. <laughs> I hated it. I absolutely, I hated every minute of it. I am mm. definitely not a marketer. I'm definitely right. not a PR, PR gal. You're uh, a journalist. I'm a journalist, right? Yeah. Just like, let me get behind my computer and write the story. Somebody else, please talk about it. Yeah. So I've learned since then that, you know, nobody advocates for you better mm-hmm. than you. you know, That's true. Other than my friend Cassie, mm-hmm. who was there with me that day. She advocated better for Thank me. Goodness. But, you know, you got to work hard for yourself. And I, it took me a, a while, longer than it probably should have, to learn that I, I had to get a little bit more aggressive in right. being willing to talk to people about what I was doing. Mm-hmm. Um, my husband would take me out, you know, and we would go and meet friends. And they would say, how's Modern Clee? And you would think they're asking and they want to hear about it. And I would be like, oh, it's going well. Thank you. And he would elbow me and be like, Jillian, <laughs> yes, actually, we just took on this new freelancer. And I would have to learn, like, we're writing this really mm-hmm. great piece. You should definitely read on Thursday. That's when it publishes. And I had to learn to talk about it as if it were valuable, which it was. I just had yeah. to learn. I, can, to I think I can relate to that. There are people in my life where I or at other jobs because I still teach dance where I don't even talk about it cuz I'm like what are right. what are they going to think like I, right. I'm just I just have this podcast like right. you know it's weird well plus I think the other aspect of it and 
maybe it's maybe it's shameful pride, mm-hmm. but there's pride involved, and I didn't want to fail. Mm-hmm. And the more people I told that I was the one launching Modern Clee, the more risk I was taking on if it failed, because right. then everybody would know, and I would be terribly embarrassed by that. And I yeah. needed to get over that too. Yeah, that's definitely just something that you can't let. Mm-mm. No, for anything, any business that anyone's trying to start. Yeah. It's just not worth it. No. <laughs> because if, you f- if you're going to fail, then you fail, right? Mm-hmm. It might as well go out swinging. Right. You're not going to die. Like. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Try as hard as you can mm-hmm. to not get to that point. And mm-hmm. it took me a while to realize, like, eh, if you get embarrassed, it's okay. Yeah. You know, it's mm-hmm. worth it. So when it was time to launch, you had a, you had a launch party with uh, your local girl gang. Yeah. And then when you did launch, what, what happened? Like, what? was going through your head? Um, honestly, it was, it was, I was so happy. Mm -hmm. I was so happy, Katie. It was like, the response was so positive and we had like a thousand views that first day, Mm. which, you know, in making our media kit and doing research for Modern Clee, I had looked at the media kits of Cleveland Magazine and Cleveland Scene, and I remember seeing that Cleveland Magazine has twenty or yeah twenty five thousand unique visitors to their site in a month. And when we had a thousand unique visitors the first day, I thought, oh my gosh, like it was incredibly. It was just such a happy moment for me because I was like, oh, maybe this will work. Maybe you did see a need and and you're filling it mm-hmm. you know because up until then it was like I thought it would be valuable and I thought people might like reading about other women and important issues in the area but I didn't know and so seeing those thousand viewers that first day it was incredibly validating for me I, yeah I can um, imagine that just feeling so good it was yeah <clears throat> it, was, it was such such a good feeling and we had such a really really good content that week um like for example, and I was I was just so proud of like what we were able to put together. Um, the first week was the election, mm-hmm. so we actually had an as told to piece from Mary Taylor, who was a lieutenant governor at the time, mm-hmm. and she was incredibly vulnerable with us. And she gave us the story about she had lost. She had um, in the primaries been running for governor, and she had lost. Mm-hmm. And so we asked her to tell us what's the lesson in in losing. And you have to be really vulnerable to talk about that, right? Like nobody right. wants to talk about losing. They want to talk yeah. about winning. And yet we had on this brand new website that nobody knew anything about this, you know, as told to piece from the lieutenant governor of the state about Mm -hmm. this incredibly vulnerable subject. Um, We talked to Amelia Sykes, who's a representative in um, Akron, about kind of racial issues and some some issues she'd had actually getting into the state house and Mm -hmm. being searched because she feels she was searched because she was an African-American. And so we covered that. Like, we were doing these really, really important Mm -hmm. articles, I thought, in addition to, you know, some more just, like, fun profiles, talking to Stephanie Sheldon, um, talking to Meg Witt of the Upspeak Collective about how to build your own business. And so I was just – I was really proud of it. I thought we had this spectacular first week Mm -hmm. of of content. It's so exciting. And now that – I mean, your model is different now, but if someone did want to pitch a story to you, Mm -hmm. how can they go about doing that? Yeah, they'll go online. Uh, We have an online contact form Mm -hmm. where they can reach out at Modern – Clee, modern CLE at gmail.com um, and you would pitch us like you would pitch any other magazine give us um, a few sentences on the story you want to write and why you're the right person to tell it and I will get back to them mm. yeah. it's good to know yeah <laughs> um, okay so 
you launched in November mm-hmm. and it is April now. Yeah. Um, what was when was the point where you decided that you needed to kind of change the model that you were working with? So in November and December, we were publishing at least one article a day, four days a week. Um, you have to keep in mind that at the same time I was doing this, I was also working full time myself. And as I mentioned, because I'm primarily in the digital space, I write a ton Mm -hmm. on a weekly basis. Like I'm probably writing anywhere between six and 10 articles myself for my own job. So, um, I was working like 70 to 80 hours a week, um, working seven days and I was super, super happy to do it. And I loved every second of it. And if I feel like if I felt like Modern Clique could have continued in that fashion at the same quality, I would have done it mm-hmm. in a heartbeat because I think I think there's obviously, simply put, there's more value in having more stories. Mm-hmm. That was, I think, the best version. Um, but I was also, I was working myself to death and, you know, I pay every single writer for a Modern Clique. And so it's, at that point, it was really anywhere from $75 to $300 to produce a story. So you can you can do the math and you can mm-hmm. see that after two months of doing that, um, I was stretching our budget. I was yeah. stretching it pretty far. Um, and I knew that until we figured out how to get revenue, we couldn't, I couldn't su- survive and Modern Clique could not survive on the current schedule. Mm-hmm. Um, so I decided to take it down to um, one article a week at that point. And um, what, we, what we did for... January and part of February was just to publish once a week and um, as a way to keep it still valuable um, I made sure that the articles that we were producing during that time were not tiny little short articles Mm -hmm. they were long kind of magazine feature length articles Um, but revenue still did not come in the way that I had hoped it would and so then um, in mid-February I made the decision to go to an email um, subscription-based mm-hmm. um, format. Was that um, a hard decision to make? Oh, incredibly hard. I. It was incredibly hard. Mm-hmm. Um, I felt like I had failed. I, I felt like if I had just done this or tried this or tried harder, and I don't know how I could have because mm-hmm. you were working eighty hours a week. Already. I was working eighty <laughs> hours a week, and I was just getting by, getting our articles out. You know, and I had to do the social media on my own in order to maintain the budget. And on top of that, I was the person, you know, reaching out and trying to get advertising and being the marketer. And um, but regardless of how hard I worked, when when you realize that you don't have enough to sustain in your current um, iteration, you can't help but feel like you mm-hmm. failed. You can't help but feel like if you had only done this thing, then maybe you wouldn't be in the position you're in. Um, I don't, I don't think rationally that that's the case, but you know, the emotional side of me felt like continuing to cut back and continuing to make modern clay so much smaller than what Mm -hmm. it started at was a failure. So yeah, it was a very difficult decision for me to make. Mm -hmm. And then once you decided to make that decision, what were the next steps that you took? started promoting it on social media and letting people know that that was the change that we were making and and trying to be as transparent as possible. You Mm -hmm. know, um, I think it's frustrating for anyone when you get something for free to be asked to to pay for it. Yeah. Nobody likes that. Um, and so I, I tried to be as sensitive as that to that as possible by being transparent 
like I didn't know if people realized that we paid writers and photographers. Um, so I wanted to let them know, you know, we do, we do pay every single person who contributes to the site. Um, and this is kind of, if you are subscribing, your money is going to them. It's mm-hmm. going back into the community. You're, you're helping, you know, we've only ever hired female photographers and female writers. Not that I wouldn't have male writers and male writers, um, male photographers, but you're helping fuel females and fuel mm-hmm. female businesses. Um, so yeah, um, did that explained a little bit about what they would get in the subscription, which is not just an article a month, but they also get 20% off our behind the story events, which we started doing in January, I think, mm-hmm. um, as a way to bring a little bit of revenue into the site. Um, and so I tried, you know, to impress upon people, like if you're coming to our events, it actually makes sense to get a subscription because then the subscription pays for itself in the discount you get in the event ticket. And I think people liked that as a perk. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, Yeah. And so this is, you've had this format for a month now, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. We sent out our first article in March. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so a new one will be coming April 16th. Hey, I can't wait. Um, And it's Fount, right? It's on Fount, yeah. Yay. Yeah. Cool. It's going to be really good. Yeah. Um, so now that after a month of this format, what are your thoughts right now on how it's going? I think it's going pretty well. Mm-hmm. I, if you can't tell by now, I guess I'm an ambitious person. And so we're not, we're not where I want to be. Yeah. I want to continue growing it. I, I hope one day that I can offer more than what we've reduced to at this point. I have a lot of dreams and ambitions for modern clay and directions that I would like to take it. Um, first, I, I really need to focus on building up our subscriber base. And mm-hmm. um, we, at this point, we still need subscribers in order to just pay for what we produce. Mm-hmm. Um, so my focus will be building that up and then you know if we get to a number where we're sustainable then saying okay how can we grow and how can we continue to make sure that what we're providing to subscribers is valuable and and is different and it's not something that they're getting somewhere else yeah um so I hope I have an opportunity to do that I think people are very supportive of what you're doing that's really nice to hear yeah very excited I'm anyone I talk to that mentions modern clay just yeah that means a lot to Mm -hmm. me it really does and it's my baby it's so Mm -hmm. important to me and I don't know I'm biased I'm a journalist (laughs) but I think journalism is just so important and I think that there's there's so much value in being able to read a story that you know has been researched and fact-checked and is told in in a way that should be really enjoyable to read and that you can curl up with a cup of coffee or maybe a glass of wine and mm-hmm. dive in and you look forward to learning something new or celebrating these awesome women in the community and that's how I like to picture people getting their email granted we send it out in the morning so maybe you save it until later that night yeah. but you curl up in your reading chair and you read it and you just think wow this is like a really cool amazing woman and I didn't know xyz about her and I'm so glad that I learned this about mm-hmm. her, and that would make me really happy if that's what Modern Clee does. I think, I think it's, I think it's doing it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Good. Um, <laughs> Cleveland has so many inspiring women. To so many, <laughs> so many, but we are kind of a small, smaller city, obviously mm-hmm. compared to New York and LA and mm-hmm. such. Do you ever worry that you're going to kind of run out of? 
content. Um, <laughs> no, I worry about reining myself in because, you know, I'm working, April is already planned out. I'm working on figuring out what our content is going to mm-hmm. be for May. And I was already like, oh, can we fit in this extra article? Like, no, no, you can't do that. <laughs> um, you got to just stick to this. Um, no, I never worry about it mm-hmm. because I'm always finding the next thing or the next yeah. person I want to write about. Um, and as I'm meeting these women through modern clean I'm, I'm thinking of additional stories we can tell and not just features about mm-hmm. them but you know covering issues that they care about one thing that has really struck me about the conversations I've had is that a lot of women are curious about how to grow their business and how do you know when it's the right time to take that mm-hmm. next step to get a storefront to hire your first um, assistant or staff member and I mean, look at me, like I'm doing modern clay. <laughs> I don't have an assistant. And yeah. um, I wonder if that's something that would be valuable to modern clay readers. Is mm-hmm. there an article there where we talk about, you know, how do you know when it's the right time to grow your business? And I just think there are so many incredible stories we could be telling mm-hmm. that would be valuable to the community. Yeah. I don't think I'm ever going to yeah, I don't, I don't think run so out either. of ideas. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm excited to see what, everything that you come up with. Oh, thank you. Mm-hmm. I appreciate that. Yeah. I guess I am too. <laughs> yeah. So you also have, it's not just the articles in the newsletter. You also have these behind the story events. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What, how did that come up? Well, it definitely, it definitely came up as as a way for us to bring in a little bit of revenue to be able to continue to pay the writers and photographers. Um, and just, you know, I always say to like, keep the proverbial lights on. Like I told you, we have to have, you know, contracts and we, you know, pay for websites and Mm -hmm. we pay for business insurance. So just to, to be able to pay those bills, but really it happened at the launch party. Um, so many people came up to me and said, well, when are you having your next event? And it hadn't even entered into my mind. Right. You know, again, I'm a journalist. I'm not a marketer. I'm not a PR person. I'm incredibly awkward. I can't believe I'm sitting here with you now talking because I just, I'm not a big be around people person. Mm-hmm. Um, and so my reaction to the launch party was like, well, we're not doing any more events. I'm so sorry to disappoint you, but you know, we're, we're a magazine. We're not going to do events. Um, but people kept asking and I just think there is this incredible desire in Cleveland for connection. Mm -hmm. Um, And we want to meet the people that we admire on Instagram. And as I told you before, as a journalist, I have a really cool job. I have a built-in excuse to be able to meet people. But not everybody has that excuse. And so I thought, you know what, maybe this does make sense. Mm -hmm. Um, We're writing about these incredible women, and I should give other women in the community the opportunity that I have as a journalist to meet them and to ask them questions and to kind of enter into their world in fun and interesting ways. And so that's what we've tried to do. Um, You know, our first Behind This Story event was with Rena Goodwin, who is um, in charge of Factor PR. Mm -hmm. And so... um, the way that we kind of shaped that event was you came and you got social media tips from her because she's, you know, in PR and she obviously has a lot of advice to offer, but it was also just an opportunity to sit with her and ask her about what she does and people could ask her questions and ask when it was the right time to hire PR and just things that maybe they wouldn't have felt comfortable, you know, sending her an email about or calling her up about, they got to ask in that environment. And so I think it was a really, really good event and it's just kind of spun out from there. Yeah, because I think <clears throat> with the digital world, you know, um, taking over so many things that weren't digital before, I think 
were kind of thinking, wait, hold on, I still want that human eye contact and connection. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. And we need it. Mm -hmm. It's so important. And you mentioned Cleveland is a smaller city. And so it's really, it's really nice that there are so many events going on. I mean, there's no shortage of it. You have your local girl gang, which has amazing events monthly. Um, You've got Cleveland Vibes that is hosting them. There's just Mm -hmm. so many opportunities. Individual businesses are hosting them. And when you start to go to them, you start to see the same people and you start to become and feel a part of the community. Like what you're doing is important just by showing up and engaging. And and that's so awesome that we all have this group that we can show up and support. And Mm -hmm. it's as simple as, okay, there's something going on Thursday night. Let's go do it. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I like that. I do too. Well, we are an hour and a half. Oh my gosh. (laughs) I talk so much, don't I? (laughs) No, it's, it's amazing. I'm so excited to share all of this with my listeners and I think people are really going to be excited to hear about just your process and your your path getting to where you are today so thank you so much for having Mm -hmm. me I really appreciate it this is so fun and I absolutely love what you're doing and I'm just I'm honored to be a part of it absolutely thank you so much is there anything else you'd like to share is there anything exciting coming up with modern clee that you want to talk about i mean our next article goes out by email on april 16th so um definitely if you're thinking about subscribing or you want to read more about fount i would suggest you know um subscribing before then um otherwise i'm just i want to take an opportunity to express my gratitude to the subscribers that we do have i I'm just overwhelmed anytime people throw their support behind Modern Clee, mm-hmm. and I'm so grateful to the people who are subscribing and who are reading and who are sending me positive messages and who are helping me to, to create this, this thing. So, mm-hmm. Yes. And how can people find you? ModernClee.com. ModernCLE.com. Mm-hmm. And the same on Instagram, ModernClee? Yep, ModernClee on Instagram. Cool. Well, thank you so much thank for you, sharing. Karen, I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Jillian. If this conversation made you at all curious to read the stories that Modern Clip produces, go ahead and sign up for their newsletter. For just $3 a month, you will get a high-quality article sent straight to your inbox each month. The subscription includes more than just an article, though. By subscribing to Modern Clee, you also get 20% off the Behind the Story events. When you do the math, you realize that when you purchase a ticket to the Behind the Story event, your subscription ends up paying for itself. It's extremely important to Jillian that she pays each writer and photographer that works for her, so when you purchase a subscription, you also know that you are directly supporting female journalists and photographers, which in my opinion is a huge perk. So if you're listening to this on the day it comes out, You can still purchase your subscription in time to receive this month's article, which comes out April 16th. So just go to modernclee.com slash newsletter to purchase your subscription. And while you're at it, give Modern Clee a follow on Instagram so you can stay up to date at Modern Clee. If you would like to connect with me, you can follow me on Instagram at Podcast. Check out my website at museroom.space or shoot an email to museroompodcast at gmail.com. And if you would like to support the podcast, you can do that by supporting one of our sponsors. Get 20% off your first order at JarGoods by going to jargoods.com slash museroom and use the code museroom, all caps, at checkout. 
You can also get 15% off your order at Free Period Press by going to freeperiodpress.myshopify.com and use the code MUSE, M-U-S-E, all caps, at checkout. As always, thank you for your support and thank you for tuning in. I will talk to you soon. Bye!